The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. My name is Linda House, and I'm the president of the Cancer Support Community. Today, I am sitting in for your regular host, Kim Tebaldo, who is away. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 170 locations worldwide, online through a website, and that address is www.cancersupportcommunity.org, and also by telephone helpline, and I will make sure and give you that number at the end of the show, which gives you a time to get a pencil to write with. It always amazes me how insights that were true hundreds of years ago are still true today. Many of you have heard of Hippocrates, the Greek physician, who was revered as the father of medicine. And he said, and I quote, the art has three factors, the disease, the patient, and the physician. On today's show, we are going to take a look at the physician experience, the changing landscape in which they practice, the challenges they face, as well as their hopes and aspirations for the future. We're very lucky to have with us Dr. Mikhail Sikaris, whose New York Times and Huffington Post blogs aim to really shed a light on just those things. And I feel really fortunate to, to, to have you here, Dr. Sikaris, and, and to be able to really give our listeners a sneak peek or an inside view of what you as, as the physician uh, goes through. Um, let me just quickly give a little intro and, and a little bit of your background because it's very impressive. Dr. Sikaris is Professor of Medicine, Director of the Leukemia Program, and Vice Chair for Clinical Research at the Cleveland Clinic Taussig Cancer Institute and Deputy Associate Director for Clinical Research of the Case Comprehensive Cancer Center in Ohio. You have chaired the the Oncologic Drug Advisory Committee of the FDA, and for those of our listeners that don't really know what that is, that's a, a review panel before a new agent or device goes in front of the FDA for a broad approval. Um, you are also co-chair of the Medical Advisory Board of the Aplastic Anemia and Myelodysplastic Syndrome International Foundation. Dr. Sakaris is a member of the American Society of Hematology, where you are also on the Executive Committee, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and also the Southwest Oncology Group, the Leukemia Committee. Your current research focuses on patients with MDS and older adults with acute myeloid leukemia. And you have been a primary study investigator on a number of early phase trials that have resulted in new solutions or treatments being brought to the market. In your spare time, you are the author and co-author of over 275 articles and 350 abstracts. 
co-author of six books, editor-in-chief of the Ash Clinical News Magazine and on the editorial board of several journals. And also, part of what we're talking about today, you are an essayist for the New York Times and the Huffington Post. Dr. Sakaris, did I miss anything? That's a very impressive background. Well, I'm just hoping my mother's listening to this broadcast because uh, she she wouldn't be nearly as impressed or impressive. (laughs) We'll make sure and get her the link. (laughs) No, I want to thank you also for asking me onto the program. It really is a privilege to, to talk to you. Uh, well, thank you so much. And again, I, I think you're going to really, uh, really open up uh, a lot of good dialogue and, and, and information for, for our patients. So thank you for being here. You know, so we talked earlier about Hippocrates, and I, I'd love to hear your input into, you know, what has really changed since that time um, in the training and instruction of physicians? What, you know, what does that really look like? Well, you know, it's a great question, and I, I have to say, first of all, I was not alive when Hippocrates was, so I don't exactly know what it was like <laughs> to uh, to be under his uh, tutelage. Um, but medicine has always been an apprenticeship, and it was an apprenticeship back in Hippocrates' time where um, people who wanted to um, practice medicine or whatever it was called back then would uh, trail after somebody who uh, professed to know what uh, he or she was doing and would try to learn that art um, and whatever uh, pearls uh, some of the young, young bucks could, could glean from, from the older master. Um, that aspect of it hasn't changed dramatically. Um, the biggest transformation in medicine came around the turn of the last century with uh, what was referred to as the Flexner Report. Uh, and this was a report that uh, basically lambasted medical education and uh, resulted in a transformation that uh, approximates what we do today. Um, people come out of college. Uh, they most have majored in some sort of science. Those who haven't majored in a science have to have taken a bunch of science courses um, just to pass the MCATs. Uh, which is the SAT equivalent for getting into medical school. And uh, then entering medical school, the first two years are um, primarily didactic. Um, People are either in in lecture courses or uh, as medical education itself has transformed, they're more more involved in small seminar settings or or even learning about medicine based on a a problem-based learning approach where uh, they're given a case, a story about somebody who has a medical condition and then have to go and do the research behind the uh, the biology of what caused the, the condition and also what to do about it. And then during the, the latter two years of medical school, most med students then go out into the hospital and do rotations where they are apprentices to people more experienced than they are to learn the different disciplines of medicine. So that apprenticeship aspect continues today, though it's, it's uh, much more uh, regulated than it was uh, back in Hippocrates' day. Mm-hmm. So, so if, I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, you have four years of undergraduate school, then you take the exam, the entrance exams to go into medical school, and then you have four years of medical school, and then you are called doctor. That is correct. Um, I will say that a lot of people take a fifth year in medical school either to do research or to get another degree. That's something that I did um, so to, because it makes you a more appealing candidate for residencies. So once you finish medical school, you declare what kind of doctor you want to be. 
Um, it could be that you want to be a surgeon or an internist, a pediatrician, anesthesiologist, a pathologist, and you go into a residency to learn that trade. Um, after the residency, if you want to su- subspecialize further, you go on to do a fellowship. So, for example, for what I do, which is hematology and oncology, I did a three-year residency in internal medicine. If I had stopped at that point, I could have been a general internist, uh, but I went on to do another three years of a hematology-oncology fellowship. That's a, that, that's a lot of school, a lot of time. It, it, it's a lot of time. Not many of us look very young by the end of that. So you're talking about four years of undergrad, four or five years of medical school, uh, at least three years of a residency, and then often uh, two, three, four years of a fellowship. So by the time you finish all of that, you're rounding 30. Yes, and and highly educated and have had the opportunity to see a lot of things. And and often with a lot of debt. Right, right. So, so talk about, you know, do you see any major changes happening in the training of, of physicians? You know, or is there, you know, a, a move for more residencies, fellowships, continuing to sort of build that level of expertise? Or is there anything that you would like to, like to see change or that you would recommend change? Sure. Those are, those are great questions. Um, one of the major changes that we're seeing in medical school is um, the disarticulation of the traditional lecture courses, and, and you've seen some of those paintings. Uh, uh, Thomas Eakins has, has done a couple called the Gross Clinic or the Agnew Clinic, where you, you see a bunch of medical students um, uh, sitting in these tiered classrooms looking down on the master surgeon performing an operation as they watch that, right? That's a, a very classic approach to education. Um, the, the joke in some of those paintings, if you look closely enough, is that a lot of the medical students that are depicted by Eakins are actually sleeping in the audience. Mm. Uh, and, and that's not too far off the truth. It's, it, it's hard to know how much people are really paying attention during a, a, a one-hour lecture and then compound that by the number of lectures you would have in a typical day in medical school. So more and more medical schools are turning towards uh, seminars and problem-based learning where you have a small group. The way we do it in, in our medical school at Cleveland Clinic is to have eight medical students and a um, problem-based learning PBL um, leader who takes the students through a typical case. And as I mentioned before, these are stories. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was a um, course director for a number of years in our medical school and wrote six weeks of the cases where the students will read about something happening to a patient, and these are based on real patients, and they then generate learning objectives. What are they going to learn about this? And they go off and do the learning on their own. So medical schools are going more towards not being a full day anymore, being half or three-quarters of a day, and letting the medical students loose on the Internet or in the library to do their own research and then bring that research back and teach their fellow classmates. That sounds very useful. It's, you know, it's, it's much more engaging, uh-huh. and the medical students take it more seriously because now they're responsible for each other's education. Mm-hmm. It's within a greater structure so that the PBL leader um, has a manual of what the students are supposed to be learning from each case, and that leader makes sure 
that the med students are, are guided towards learning those specific objectives and that they get it right when they come back and teach their classmates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was in medical school, we still had the lecture system, and I was one of the pacers. Um, I was one of the med students who, after two years of doing this, couldn't sit anymore and uh, got up in the back of the classroom and just paced back and forth during the lecture. Um, we don't have that structure as much, uh, and it makes medical students more engaged and inculcates them into um, how they're going to be practicing medicine, teaching colleagues, consulting colleagues, doing their own research for the good of their patients. Yeah, that's great. And so what, as we're getting ready to go to a commercial break, um, so, you know, you've gone through a little bit about what's changed. What are the things that you are, um, that, that you are glad to see stable, right? What are the changes that you don't feel like should have been made and, and, and that give you some sense of reassurance? There's still a basic top-down structure to medical schools where experts in a field are teaching medical students how to practice medicine. That's still valuable. Um, There's still the aspect of it where medical students are apprentices and are seeing um, the care of patients and modeling their own care after other people. Um, Boy, that's a great system when you have great teachers. Yes. No, but I I can see that. That's great. Um, So we are going to take a quick commercial break. I can't believe that we're on the commercial break already. This happened happened quickly. Um, Quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with you and just get an even deeper understanding about sort of the inside uh, knowledge of being a physician. So please stay with us. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we'll be right back after the break. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. 
Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Linda House, sitting in for Kim Tebaldo, who is off this week. And today we are talking to Dr. Mikhail Sakaris about the doctor's perspective and experience in healthcare. And this is really a great opportunity for all of us to sort of get an inside track and an inside view into what physicians go through as they are training and as they are going through their daily lives taking care of patients, which is so important to uh, to all of us. So, Dr. Sakaris, can you just kind of speak to, you know, medicine is often described as an art and a science, and do you think that that description is accurate, and can you just say more uh, more about that? Sure. Um, yeah, you know, to get into medical school, as, as we discussed earlier, um, medical students have to have taken a lot of science courses, and then during the first couple of years of medical school, they're still pretty heavy into book learning. Um, then they meet people, they meet patients, people who have medical conditions and have to apply that book knowledge to a real-life scenario. Well, you know, I always say it's rare that one of my patients actually reads one of the textbooks for how his or her disease is supposed to appear. So that's the art aspect of it, is to take a step back from your learning, and while you're applying it, um, modify it on every patient that you meet. The other aspect of the art of medicine is that there are um, a number of confounding things that happen that will get in the way of what you prescribe as your um, treatment for a condition. So, for example, uh, there was a a patient I uh, was seeing as a consult, and um, I knew she had a diagnosis of leukemia. Um, my fellow came and, and uh, I, I fellows who were in my clinic, my fellow had gone to see the patient and came, in, came back to, to see me to report what um, she had learned about the patient. We decided on a treatment course between us and, and, and discussed why that would be an appropriate treatment course. And then when I went in to see the patient to talk with her about the chemotherapy we would recommend. When I walked in the room, uh, the first thing I noticed were her shoes. Her shoes were scuffed. Um, they were ripped. Uh, it was obvious she wasn't uh, taking great care of herself. This is a woman who was in her 70s. And I looked at her sweatshirt uh, that she was wearing that had a bunch of food stains on it and hadn't been washed in a while. Her hair was unkempt. And I, I thought to myself, this is not somebody who can manage chemotherapy and all of the attendant complications that can go along with chemotherapy on her own. And, and in fact, she was living by herself. Um, she, her daughter was in the room, but her daughter lived a couple hours away and, and made it pretty clear that, that she was not going to move in with her mother or have her mother move in with her. So, you know, I tell that story because it's an example of the art of medicine. You, just because you know uh, logically, scientifically what the right thing is to do, um, 
It doesn't mean your patients have read that textbook or that there aren't other factors that go into that decision and what's going to be right for an individual patient. In this case, we delayed therapy for a month as we were able to help this woman um, get on to um, Medicare and Medicaid, um, get into a stable, skilled nursing facility where we could then start chemotherapy knowing that she would be safe to travel back and forth to clinic um, and get the blood and platelet transfusions that she would require. That's that's a great story, and it really I think emphasizes the importance of both the the uh, the biomedicine side of what you do, and also the social and emotional psychosocial piece of what you do. Oh, for sure. I mean, particularly with what we do, the the psychosocial aspects are equally important to to, to what's going on biologically. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about uh, patient centered care. You know, we hear a lot about patient centered care, and it's. You know, sometimes it's become a, a term that may be used more loosely than, than others. And, you know, I, I say that when I think about the way in which it might be used in, in policy circles in particular. So just, you know, to talk to our, to our listeners a little bit about what does patient-centered care mean to the medical community? So I love the whole notion of patient-centered care. And, and for me, it grounds everything I do from a research perspective or a clinical perspective. Within our leukemia program at Cleveland Clinic, all of our research is focused on a patient. It's patient-centered. We think about our patients who have leukemia or other bone marrow disorders, such as myelodysplastic syndromes, um, from the moment that person receives a diagnosis to the causes of that cancer, uh, the risk factors for developing the cancer, how that person is making decisions about therapy and what that person's quality of life is going to be like, what types of interventions we want to make, and how the biology of that cancer is going to influence outcomes. So all of our research is patient-centered, and I think if your research isn't patient-centered, it's probably going to go veer um, from what's ultimately going to be important in advancing cancer care. Mm-hmm. From the standpoint of our patients clinically, we, uh, we're dedicated to thinking about what the experience of cancer is like from that person's perspective. Um, from the moment that person gets out of a car and walks through doors that say cancer center, um, and, and I half joke, half serious, that if, if my uh, patients don't have an elevated blood pressure when I first see them, they probably aren't paying attention to what's going on or, in, or are in some degree of denial about what's going on. Um, and we try to make this experience at least as tolerable um, as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, when you think about, you know, extending that a little bit further um, to moving from patient-centered care, which is, you know, by your, by your description, you know, patient at the center of the care and you sort of gear everything around their particular needs to patient-directed care, and I know one of the things that you have written about is letting patients read their medical files, um, the complete medical files, not just, you know, their, their lab results, but also your interpretation of, of the visit and your notes. So, you know, how do you feel, you know, that this transparency sort of leads either to patient-centered care or patient-directed care? I'm a, I've always been a firm believer that patients should have access to everything that is written about them, any procedure that's performed on them, or any tissue we have um, that, that, that came from them. They, they're the owners of that information. They're the owners of those blood and tissue samples. So um, early on, I 
wrote all of my notes assuming that a patient was one day going to to, to read them. Um, you know, one of the greatest services we perform um, in cancer is educating our patients. Uh, I can't tell you how many times a patient has come to me, particularly with some of the obscure conditions that I treat, um, and has said that we are the first. This is the first time that he or she has um, gotten a full explanation of of how the cancer arose, what could have caused the cancer, and uh, clearly defined treatment options uh, according to what's right for that person. You know, you asked earlier about how medicine has changed. One, one way that's probably most noticeable is is that medicine has gone from being uh, paternalistic or maternalistic, where in the Marcus Welby days, the doctor would say, this is what's right for you, don't ask any questions, to um, more of a partnership where a lot of us view our job as educating our patients as best we can about what treatment options they have and then letting them decide what's mm-hmm. going to be best for them. So I... You know, making medical records open to patients, and we have an electronic medical record system. Our patients can read our the notes that we write about them. Um, helps in that process. W- when we first announced that we were going to do this, the essay that the editorial that that um, I wrote uh, actually listed some of the comments from the docs. Who who not all the docs were thrilled that this was going to happen. Some of the concerns that came about was, well, what if my patient, I I have to spend the day now fielding phone calls from patients who want to ask questions about the note I wrote about them. Well, that's a good thing. That means your patients are invested in their own care. It also may mean that you didn't explain yourself very well and you Mm -hmm. need to start over. So uh, I think all of these things are ultimately good for patient care. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, I love it. You know, and, and I, th- I mean, I love it for so, for so many reasons. You know, a couple that come to mind, you know, immediately is, you know, we can all use a double check, you know. And so I think, you know, having a, the, the patient having access to even their lab results and say, gosh, my hemoglobin was this this week and it was this last week. Is that something I should be, you know, concerned about, you know, as one example. The other reason I really love it is that, you know, we have a cancer experience registry where patients are going in and completing information about their overall cancer experience with us. We have about 10,000 people um, in there now and growing. Wow. And we've we have asked patients about how they define value. So in this conversation around what is really meaningful to, to the patient and what what has you know just really been heads and shoulders above all other responses is the time that they have with the healthcare professional to really understand what's going on with their case and being a part of the process. You know, and I think what you're doing here really gives patients what they're really looking for. They're a part of the process, and they have time with you to, to, to better understand what, what is going on with their scenario. So I really applaud you for that. Well, it's, it's nice of you to say when, you know, it's, it's not all selfless. Well, none of this should be selfless. It's all about our patients. When, when people are more engaged in their medical care, they get better care. And I can give you a great example. One of our huge success stories in cancer therapy is the treatment of a condition called chronic myeloid leukemia. Uh, a drug was approved in 2001. Um, the generic name is imatinib. The, the brand name is Gleevec that changed the face of this condition. It used to be that people lived on average three to five years, and the only chance for any kind of 
um, durable lifespan was to undergo a, a bone marrow transplant, which is an incredibly aggressive procedure. Once this drug came on the market, um, the number of bone marrow transplants that had to be performed plummeted, and people were living a decade, more than a decade. We're still counting to find out the average lifespan of these folks. So this is a, probably the single greatest justification for 30 or 40 years of NIH funding for cancer research. Mm-hmm. The, the number one reason um, a person's leukemia progresses, gets worse while on Gleevec, is that mm-hmm. that person is not taking his or her pills. Mm-hmm. And there are there's a study that was performed in the United Kingdom where um, doctors surreptitiously put a, a computer chip on a pill bottle that measured every time the pill bottle was opened so they could actually see how often patients were taking their pills, whether they were taking it daily as they were supposed to. Um, and it turns out what people report their rate of taking these pills is completely off from what the computer chip was monitoring. And you could see peaks and valleys depending on the time of year. Um, for example, you could see one example that I saw at a conference was a patient who um, took his pills all through November, and then as December came, eh, took the pills here and there, and then New Year's came, and you could tell he took a New Year's resolution to take his pills, and he took it every day again, then it fell off again in February. If, if we have our patients engaged in their own care, things like drug compliance, which directly leads to success or failure with this miracle drug in leukemia, um, is going to get much better also. Yes, agree. And, and I'll tell you a quick story before we go to, to break is uh, out of the, the cancer experience registry that I mentioned to you, we have a specialty registry in CML, the kind of cancer that you talked about where Gleevec would be available. And to really underscore what you're saying, we did a presentation at the, uh, the ASH meeting, and I know you're a member of ASH, and we looked at patients in the registry who declared that they had some level of financial toxicity or some you know, level of financial hardship. And in those patients, 32% were not adherent to their drug. If you layered in just a risk for depression, so not even a clinical diagnosis, but a risk for depression, that number went up to 57%. Wow. So you've got up to two-thirds of the patients not taking their drugs because of you know, a financial barrier in some situation and, and a depression. So back to your point around patient-centered care and being a part of the, you know, a, a part of the equation, um, it's, it's, it's very interesting, especially in that population. Absolutely. Yeah. So we are going to run to a quick commercial break. I would please ask that our listeners stay with us, and we'll be back right after this break. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. 
Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am Linda House, sitting in for your host, Kim Tibaldo, who is out today. Our very special guest is Dr. Mikhail Sakaris, who is sharing with us insights about his experience as a physician and perspective around just care today and as we're moving more towards personalized medicine and patient-centered care and, and other aspects of that. Uh, Dr. Sakaris has an amazing background, which includes being a clinical research director for a number of leukemia uh, programs, including that at the Cleveland Clinic. He has authored over 275 articles, 350 abstracts, is a co-author on six books and editor-in-chief of the American Society for Hematology Clinical News Magazine, as well as being on the editorial board of several journals, and his essays appear in the New York Times and the Huffington Post. So we are so thankful to to have you here with us um, today. You know, we were talking about um, patient adherence and how we really are seeing breakthrough medicines um, becoming available over the course, I would say over the last maybe 15 years. And I know that one of the things that you've really talked about um, is patient-centered care. We've talked about that in the last segment, but also how patient-centered care can be applied more to the drug development and approval process. And that's something that in your role on the ODAC committee, you've had experience with. So can you talk a little bit about your thoughts around that and, and how you would like to see the, the, shi- the system shift? Sure. One of the things I tried to bring into my tenure as chair of the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee. I was on um, ODAC for a total of five years and chaired it for the the last two before I um, stepped aside because of uh, term limits, was that at the end of the day, if I couldn't imagine sitting in one of my stark exam rooms across from a patient and explain to a patient why a drug would benefit that person, then ultimately I didn't think we could vote for approval of that drug. And maybe that it's a little bit unusual to have that kind of bar because when, when we're sitting on ODAC, um, we're really thinking about the health of the public. Um, but on a very personal level, each of us also thinks about individual patients and how, that, how a person is going to, to benefit. And I can, I can give you one example. One of the most um, controversial decisions I was involved with was when a breast cancer drug, Avastin, was initially approved under the accelerated approval mechanism at FDA. Um, and then in what was supposed to be a confirmatory study, it actually didn't have um, a very large effect um, on patients. Uh, the, the outcome was not 
substantiated. The way FDA looks at this is the accelerated approval mechanism was really born in the era of HIV when there was a, a, a big push for drugs to become available quickly to patients. So if FDA sees a drug that is very active based on some interim endpoint. Um, what I mean by that is maybe a trial hasn't shown that it prolongs survival in a cancer patient, but maybe it shows that it's, uh, it, it prolongs um, a remission rate. Then FDA can approve a drug based on the, that interim endpoint, but the stipulation is that a follow-up study has to uh, both confirm that extent of benefit and also ideally show a survival benefit, a clinically meaningful benefit. In the case of Avastin, which was initially approved under accelerated approval for metastatic breast cancer, um, the initial study showed an, an advance of progression-free survival, a benefit of progression-free survival of about four and a half months for those treated with Avastin versus those who weren't. And, and patients were treated with both Avastin and another chemotherapeutic, which is tried and true. On the follow-up study, that advantage shrunk to a month and a half, and there was no survival advantage whatsoever. So the FDA can withdraw a drug from the market um, if it turns out that in, in the initial enthusiasm wasn't substantiated later on. We were part of that committee to decide that Avastin should be removed from, from the market. Now, now, part of democracy is that a company making a drug can contest that um, and uh, what, what winds up happening is there, it, it, it's kind of a legal showdown. So there was a callback of some of us who were on the initial panel to the company's lawyer versus FDA's lawyer in arguing whether or not this drug should be removed from the market. And, and once again, we, we voted that the drug should be removed from the market. One of the main drivers in my decision for that vote, it was a, a terribly difficult vote to make, was that I couldn't picture sitting in a room across from a woman with metastatic breast cancer and, and figure out a way to justify use of this drug to her. Um, had a number of side effects, and those side effects were serious. There were some deaths seen as, directly as a result of that drug. And it would, in the end, result in a progression-free survival advantage of a, of a month and a half. So we couldn't even say someone was going to live longer. And there was no quality of life advantage to the drug, so we couldn't say that somebody was going to live better either. Mm -hmm. So... I've gone on and on about this. I apologize for that. It's something I feel passionately about. But at the end mm -hmm. of the day, even even at a regulatory standpoint where you're thinking about populations, you're thinking about individual patients also. Mm -hmm. and, and just give a quick clarifier, though, because the drug is still on the market, but just not for that particular tumor type. That That is absolutely correct. Okay. I just don't want anybody to hear the show and, 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 and get a little nervous about that. Um, so, okay. Thanks so, for the clarification. Yep. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, so let's talk about your writing because you are a prolific writer. So how did, you, how did you sort of get into that? Did you always have literary aspirations or is that something that came uh, about as you moved through your career? I come from a family of English majors. Oh. Um, both, of, both of my parents were English majors, and my, my dad was a reporter for the Providence Journal Bulletin and then a, a section editor thereafter. So uh, I came into writing fairly naturally. Um, mm -hmm. Family lore has it that I was writing stories at the age of six and seven and um, have always debated whether I would go down a route that was more um, along English and writing versus medicine. 
when mm-hmm. I was interviewing for, for medical school, I distinctly remember at one interview, this is a kind of classic interview question, somebody said to me, well, if you don't get into medical school, what are you going to do? And the correct answer is I'm going to slavishly work in a lab and reapply and reapply and reapply until I finally get in. Um, my answer was I'll become an English professor because I could have seen go- going down that route as well. So uh, I guess it's always uh, always been there, and and part of, of what germinated that was when I would uh, talk to my parents, neither of whom had a great science background about what I was doing in medical school. They would bark at me if I used a- any words that were too complex. Mm. And, and and so so is, is that what you is that sort of what moved you to write for the lay public? Which came first, professional writing or the lay public? <laughs> it's, it's a great question. Um, it's I did a little bit of both. Um, I did some creative writing in uh, college. I was the uh, prose editor for the for our college literary magazine. Um, I continued to do some writing as I uh, journaled my experiences in medical school and residency, um, but I also um, authored my first scientific article when I was in medical school. So it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a little bit of both have crept into each each style. I've probably probably become um, a, a little more clear in my scientific writing um, because I don't feel as compelled to use some of those uh, $5 words that my uh, parents would bark at me about. And mm-hmm. some of the advice my, my dad always gave me is, is you know, to not use the complicated words, to write plainly and clearly, and that's what's going to resonate with your readers. Uh, so, so I think the, the writing I've done for a general audience um, has made my scientific writing better. That I do research and write scientific articles uh, informs some of the subject matters of what I write for lay audiences. Mm-hmm. Well, and you've certainly covered a range of topics, you've, from patients shopping for doctors to patients decorating hospital rooms. How do you, what, what really inspires you? I suspect that there's a story I need to write about when I um, feel um, my own tension in an interaction. And um, uh, if I could give you an example, if uh, for the essay that I wrote about when a doctor can declare a cancer has been cured, I've had a number of patients who say to me, point blank, am I cured? And they've asked that immediately after therapy. They ask that five years after therapy. Um, and every time I get that question, I can feel my gut churn a little bit because some people are cured, but the but the truth is, there's a very small percentage of people who, who aren't cured. And, and I write about that in, in, in the essay, how we're supposed to say at five years you're cured, yet I've had a couple of patients who come back at year eight or nine um, with a bone marrow disorder and say, well, you said I was cured, Doc. What's going on? So if I sense some tension in myself, um, uh, that's usually an indicator to me that, I, that there's, there's an essay that needs to be written. Mm-hmm. And, and can you point to one or two that you're particularly proud of? Boy, it's like identifying your favorite child, <laughs> <laughs> which, which my three kids are always trying to get me to do, by the way. I would tell them they, I have a favorite child at the moment, so they try to jockey to be that one. Um, the, um, boy, what's my favorite? There are a couple of essays that I'm particularly proud about. There, there's one where I write about why I chose to go into oncology, um, 
it was when I was an intern and I thought I was going to be a cardiologist, but I um, spent one night in the intensive care unit during my first month of internship, where, actually my first day of internship, where I literally had no idea what I was doing and was completely lost. And then in the middle of this chaos, as I was, I was hanging on to my, my upper-level resident who, who told me how to do everything that night, um, I, I kept walking by the room of a woman who had metastatic ovarian cancer um, who had come to the intensive care unit thinking that you know, she would have to go on a, on a respirator, but, but actually at the last moment decided she didn't want to and this was going to be her last night on earth. Um, she decided if this was going to be her last night on earth, uh, she didn't want to be on a breathing machine. And during the night, her, her husband had come in with her kids and then walked them out. Her kids were 8 and 10 years old and... Uh, that really got all of us. I mean, there were, I think the entire unit of doctors and nurses had to leave at, at some point to cry just at the, the spectacle of this. Um, her, her husband led the kids away and then came back with a plastic bag uh, along with her best friend. And they sat, stood by her bed all night as she filled out cards for these kids. Um, and she was filling out birthday cards, bar and bat mitzvah cards, cards for Valentine's Day, cards for holidays, um, so that she could be a part of their lives uh, for the next 8, 10, 15 years when, when she wouldn't be around anymore. And I think it was at that moment that I realized that I wanted to go into oncology to have even a, a glancing relationship with people who face death with, with such dignity and grace. Uh, and, and she did wind up dying early in the next morning. So she had, she had accomplished her goal and then was ready to go. Um, I wrote about that. It's, you know, a lot of people still still cite that, that essay back to me and cite it as a, as a reason that they themselves considered oncology. Um, and for me, it was most meaningful because it really, it, it's rare in life that we identify a seminal moment when we make a decision, and that was the seminal moment for me. Mm-hmm. And I would love to, for our listeners, get a hold of the link to that essay and post it to our website, if, if, if you would be agreeable to that. Sure, of course. Yep, great. Thank you. We are going to take a quick commercial break. Uh, we are going to come back for the last segment, so please stick with us, and we have a little bit more to learn from Dr. Sakaris on this particular topic. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. 
For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and I have to quickly thank the sponsors of today's program. This show is brought to you in part by Insight Corporation, NovoCure, Taiho Oncology, Lilly Oncology, and AstraZeneca. And I have to especially thank you, Dr. Sakaris, for, for being with us today. It's been such a great show, and you've really contributed a lot to the, the, the knowledge of, of our, our listeners and what no, it's like it's to be wonderful. a physician. Yeah, and, and we promise that we're going to put some links up to your writing, but if you could just quickly give us a snapshot of where, is, is there an easy place, one shot that we can go and find your writing? I guess the Huffington Post would be an easy one. Um, I have a few essays in Huffington Post. I have, um, I've written over 30 essays in the New York Times in the Well blog, and uh, I've written some for medical journals as well, uh, Journal of Clinical Oncology, JAMA, uh, sites like that. Great. So we'll ask our listeners to keep an eye out for our blog, and we'll make sure that they get to to your essays and can read them themselves. Thank you. So we've talked a little bit about how medical information and patient access to medical information has changed over the years. And I know some of the, sometimes we hear about um, ways in which, you know, patients will come into their appointment and they'll have a notepad or they'll have uh, a tape recorder or they'll have just a pile of papers, you know, to ask you to, to, to go through with them. So do you feel like patients are becoming more or less prepared for those conversations with you? And do you feel like your appointment is more or less productive based on their level of preparation? Yeah, I- Yes, yes, and yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it when patients do research on their own before they come in to see me um, and then present that research to me and say, what do you think? Um, or I read this, what do you think? Uh, I, again, my, my, it's the best part of my day when people are engaged in their own health care. Uh, it means that the, the, the relationship that we're going to develop is going to be that much more meaningful. Uh, the you've probably heard before, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners on this program have heard that the internet is not a monitored venue. So there's some stuff that's on the internet that's in, that's incredibly accurate and very valuable, and there's some that is wildly inaccurate. And as as I will sometimes say to my patients, uh, people, it, it, there's not as much drama if people write about a good outcome. So you're going to have some bias on the internet towards people who do worse. 
Um, and that does not mean that that outcome is going to translate to, um, to, to one of my patients. So uh, I think it helps. I think my patients are coming to appointments um, better prepared. It does change a little bit of the nature of our conversation because sometimes instead of me proactively uh, explaining something about this person's cancer and what the treatment options are, I'm reacting to what my patients are presenting to me. But either is fine. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you coach new physicians to that? Uh, the, one of the challenges with new physicians, and I, I've, I wrote about this also with a, a friend of mine, uh, Tim Gilligan, and Tim is a, an expert on uh, communications with doctors. He goes around the country and teaches doctors how to communicate to their patients. And believe it or not, there is a specialty for that. And um, Tim and I wrote about this whole notion of doctor communication. In a way, we go into medical school knowing how to talk to people. Then during medical school, we receive a lot of training on communication. And I think that an almost backwards effect of that is that you start to think to yourself, oh, Maybe I should be communicating differently with patients because I'm getting all these courses on communication. And you become a little bit rigid in how you talk to people. Um, a, a perfect example is that, you know, before medical school, if you were walking down the block and your neighbor uh, fell down her front steps, you would have run over and gone, oh, my God, are you okay? Can I get you some help? Um, after medical school, you learn you have to run over and say, on a scale of 1 to 10, rate your pain. <laughs> right. A little bit of a ridiculous story, but it, it, it emphasizes what happens. So uh, one of the things that I try to do with people who are in my clinic, be they medical students, residents, or, or, or fellows, is reteach them how to talk to people and to recognize that it's okay to go into a patient's room and laugh and joke around and tease and talk about your kids or their kids or their grandkids. Um, that doesn't in any way spoil the relationship. It makes it much richer. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. And we are going to have to close the show. We're right at, right at one minute, and I wanted to make sure that we give patients resources that would be um, helpful to them. So first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for being so frank and candid and, and sharing your experiences and, and, and all you're doing for patients. This has been a, a great conversation, and I really hope that we'll have you back on the show very, very soon. I would come any time, and I, I really appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Oh, great. Well, thank you. We will, we'll, we will take you up on that. Um, I want to just make sure that our listeners know where they can find information on the Internet. Um, our website, which is www.cancersupportcommunity.org. We also have a telephone helpline. That number is 888-793-9355. And before I sign off, I'll just say this is Linda House from the Cancer Support Community, standing in for Kim Tebaldo, who will be back with you next week week. Again, please keep a watch on our blog. We will post links to Dr. Sakara's publications and essays so that you can get even more involved in the work that he does. And um, again, our our telephone helpline is 888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.